I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest what-ifs. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to the Holy Roman Empire, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, A History of Valois Burgundy. Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is The Hundred Years' Wars of the Roses for Brittany. (laughs) Yes, a very uncreative name for a series about the Hundred Years' War and its resulting conflicts. So please indulge me this once on a series title. These conflicts impact not just the thrones of France and England, but also Scotland and Spain, as well as the dynastic affairs of multiple counties and duchies in Western Europe. I may have bitten off more than I could chew with this series, which probably isn't a mini-series since I'm planning on covering at least 15 individual or group claimants, two historic theories, multiple conflicted successions, and four special episodes for patrons. Before I get too far in, let me name our subjects. They are the sons of Edward III, Edward the Black Prince, our first past heir apparent to predecease the monarch. I am currently planning two episodes for this almost king. Lionel of Antwerp, whose episode will include a discussion of Edward III's entail and a further discussion on succession law. John of Gaunt, surprise, who will get three episodes, at least, and will help explain the reach of this conflict outside of the traditional Anglo-Franco realms, plus the whole House of Lancaster thing. I would also like to include an episode on chivalry at this point because it's an important part of the philosophy of the three previous sons of Edward III, and of Edward III himself. A shared episode for Edmund of Langley and Thomas of Woodstock. The former needs covered mainly due to his descendants. You may know them as the Yorkist. The latter needs covered because of his work to restrain his nephew's tyrannical actions. Normally, I wouldn't include all the surviving sons of a king, 
but since four of these men will have descendants crowned, I think it's important to explain where these houses began. One of them is related to every single individual crowned since Henry IV. Don't think about how related everyone is, okay? That's my job. I also can't leave out Thomas of Woodstock. He's an often overlooked member of Edward III's family, and I think he deserves a bit of attention. I'll take a break from subjects at this point to provide historic context for the next phase of the series, because there are two changes in kings of England during this time, and the ongoing conflict needs to be addressed. I will also present an episode on the War of Breton Succession, because it's fun listening to kings be hypocrites, and an episode about the Black Plague, because all four horsemen of the apocalypse were invited to this party. After these three episodes, I will be covering the claimants that were usurped by Henry's 4th, 5th, and 6th. The second group includes the Mortimer, Cambridge, and Percy claimants, and Richard of York. After this, I will head over to France, because they also had some dynastic strife as well. In these episodes, I will cover, together, Louis, Duke of Guyenne, and John, Duke of Touraine. With them, I will take the time to explain the dynastic upheaval that the reign of Henry V of England inflicted on France. Because it's also the right time, I will discuss the mental illnesses that inflicted three kings during this period. Richard II of England, Charles VI of France, and his grandson, Henry VI of England. Mental illness is a topic that I think must be addressed when discussing those ruling vast empires, whose decisions impact millions of subjects. And lastly, Back in England, but with strong French connections. The only English Prince of Wales ever killed in battle. Edward, the Prince of Wales, son of Henry VI. Finally, I will include the conclusion of the War of the Roses. The women with a better claim than Henry VII. His mother, Margaret Beaufort, the senior Lancastrian claimant. His wife, Elizabeth of York, the senior York claimant. His oldest son's mother-in-law, Isabella of Castile the senior Lancastrian claimant without questioned legitimacy. Am I using the claims of these three as an excuse to do an episode on each of them? Yes, 100% yes. Why wouldn't I? Before leaving the not so many series, I want to do an episode on feudalism, both how it came about and how this incredibly long conflict began to bring it to an end in Western Europe. I will be offering at least four special episodes to patrons, don't worry, these will get done, since two of them are pretty much written already. These will be Edward III of England, Charles II of Navarre, and Henry V of England. They are likely to be at least two parts each. They'll be included in an ongoing special episode series, One Kingdom is Not Enough. Cue James Bond music. As you may guess, <laughs> this will cover kings for whom their own kingdom was not enough. They just had to try to go and get a second. And by popular request, I will do a special episode on Joan of Arc in the special episode series, Heroes and Villains. So what is the Hundred Years' War? And further, what are the Wars of the Roses and the War of Breton Succession? In simple terms, they're a family squabble that got a bit out of hand. I wish I were joking. But for much of the post-Roman history of Western Europe, wars were basically family feuds. Instead of fighting over the silverware, kings and their vassals fought over titles, land, and kingdoms. 
Now, not every conflict was that, and I don't want to be completely reductionist, but a lot have a basis in dynastic arguments. The Hundred Years' War covers the period from May 1337 to October 1453. It, of course, wasn't one continuous conflict. It was punctuated by treaties, the Black Death, and a few usurpations, which is lucky for us. But overall, it was 116 years of irregular battles, skirmishes, territorial disputes, and looking at you, Charles of Navarre, shifting alliances. Just like every other military conflict in history. Before I start, I want to disclose the risk of an Anglo bias that I am fighting. I was raised in the US, and while my history education was more broad than most, as an Anglophone, it's expected that my knowledge of English history would be greater than that of French. I can access many more sources in English without having to search for translations from French. Many of my listeners are from English-speaking countries and will have had a similar education to me. So we'll have a better grasp of the Anglo part of Anglo-Frankish history. So to any of my Francophone and Francophile listeners, désolé. <laughs> to even begin to explain the Hundred Years' War, I have to explain the earlier Anglo-French War that ran from 1213 to 1214 and French centralization, something England had already dealt with during the reigns of Alfred the Great, his son, Edward the Elder, and his grandson, Athelstan. As I discussed in the last series, English territory in France had been significantly diminished from its greatest extent under Henry II. At the time of his death in 1189, he controlled more of France than the King of the Franks. His son, Richard I, did little to change the territory controlled by England, until he was captured and held for ransom while returning from the Crusades. He was far more interested in crusading than governing any of his kingdom. While he was captive, his brother, John, the future King John, not only lost a great deal of English territory in France, but once he was crowned, he almost lost the English throne to the French heir, Louis the Lion, the future Louis VIII. John's son and successor, Henry III, did nothing to correct these losses, and he, like his father, was skilled at causing arguments with his barons and choosing the wrong allies for overseas conflicts. By 1214, the only area of France left in English control was the Duchy of Gascony, in the southwest of France, bordering Aragon and Navarre. From the French point of view, Louis the Lion's father, Philip II, the Auguste, was the great hero. He had begun the process of centralizing French royal power and retaking of French territory, or at least being more strict in his requirements to his vassals. He even took the step of changing his title from King of the Franks to King of France. What seems like a minor linguistic change was actually a huge statement. The area that was French was to be his, not just the people living there. At the Battle of Bouvines in 12... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 14. Philip defeated a coalition of the Holy Roman Empire, the County of Flanders, and the Kingdom of England. The English commander, John's illegitimate half-brother, William Longespie, was even taken prisoner. Yes, Henry II took after his grandfather in more ways than one. This win for the French saw Philip as the unchallenged authority in most of France, and began the decline of King John's reign in England, cut thankfully short by peaches and dysentery. Philip II's son, the aforementioned Louis the Lion's reign, was shockingly short. Really, the Capetians, save the last four, were known for their uncommonly long reigns. He died of dysentery at only 39, leaving behind a 12-year-old king. This would leave France with a regency, which is normally, as we'll see through this series, not the best thing for any kingdom. But France, or at least the French crown, got very lucky. Louis VIII was succeeded to the throne by his son Louis IX, but the real power lay in the hands of his widow, Blanche of Castile. I have mentioned Blanche and Louis IX previously, due to their huge impact on French history. Like her great-great-grandmother, the Empress Matilda, and her great-granddaughter Isabella, she was ready for a fight if that's what was needed to protect her son's kingdom. Oh yes, you may have noticed yet again, everyone is related. With the help of France's papal legate and Theobald of Champagne, King of Navarre, did I mention everyone is related? He's one of Stephen of Blois' many great-nephews, Blanche of Castile's first cousin, once removed via Eleanor of Aquitaine, and a great-grandfather to Isabella of France. Blanche was able to secure the royal centralization that her father-in-law had started. She prevented the nobility of the kingdom from decentralizing control of France, something many of them were in favor of because it weakens the king and allows them more freedom. Over time, her son learned from her calm and reasoned rule. He would keep his nobles in check, prevent Henry III of England's disastrous attempt to take back lost French territory, and lead two crusades. He was canonized less than 30 years after his death. By the time we reach the start of the Hundred Years' War, there has been a long simmering, no, wait, who am I kidding? Boiling dispute between France and England, regularly involving the Low Countries, the Papacy, and sometimes the Holy Roman Empire and Spain important interjection here because it was asked in one of my history courses in university 
by a very intelligent peer of mine. The low countries are the area encompassing the current countries of Belgium, the Netherlands, and the Principality of Luxembourg. This area was an early trading center around the fall of Rome, and being on a river delta was a frontier zone during the Roman Empire. During the Middle Ages, it was a wealthy area, benefiting from trade and commerce with its neighbors. Because covering the Hundred Years' War, the War of Breton Succession, and the Wars of the Roses as a whole would take a bit more than the 30 minutes I usually allot for these introductory episodes. I'll just stick to covering the general participants and the battles leading up to my first subject, Edward the Black Prince. Nearly 150 years of history deserves a bit more than a 30-minute overview. As discussed throughout my last miniseries, the male heirs of Philip the Fair died with only short-lived or no male issue. After the death of Charles IV, the youngest of Philip the Fair's sons in 1328, the leading nobility of France declared Philip of Valois king as Philip VI. Philip VI was the nephew of Philip the Fair, and therefore a cousin to Isabella of France, Edward III's mother. At the time, Edward III was 15, and his mother did not press his claim. She was busy losing Scotland and reappropriating her dower lands, and maybe a little bit extra. Don't think any of the subjects in this show are heroes. They're all just humans with fancy titles. Edward III did protest upon seizing his majority, but decided to pay homage for Gascony and to move on. All was well, or at least okay-ish. Edward III and Philip VI even planned to go on crusade together in 1332 though this never materialized. In 1334, though, tension began to rise. Philip wanted to continue French centralization. As part of that, he wanted Gascony. He had also given refuge to David II, King of Scots. In all fairness to David, he was 10 at the time and didn't have much control over his life at all. And Edward may have been more upset that his younger sister Joan, David's wife, had been taken to France. Christmas will be awkward again this year, but at least Charles of Valois won't be around to poison the punch, right? Anglo-Scottish relations hadn't gotten any better since, well, since the Romans, despite multiple treaties and marriage alliances. Finally, in 1336, Edward III offered refuge to Robert of Artois, Philip VI's brother-in-law, who had created a scandal by forging his father's will poorly by many accounts, in an attempt to inherit the county of Artois over his aunt. Robert of Artois had been one of Philip's trusted advisors. I will make sure to cover this period and its impacts in Edward III's special episodes. Protecting Robert of Artois was all the excuse Philip VI needed to confiscate Gascony from Edward III, who had violated his vows as a vassal by harboring his liege lord's enemy. The reacquisition of Gascony was all Edward III needed to remember that he had a claim to the French throne that he had never pressed. I imagine both of them with shocked Pikachu faces. While Philip VI had taken Gascony in 1337, he hadn't actually gone into Gascony to secure it. Edward III's forces were still there, and the Seychelles of Gascony, the closest equivalent, would be the King's Stuart or Senior Guard basically Edward's man in Gascony, had not turned over the territory. Feudalism comes into play with this. While Edward III owed allegiance to Philip VI due to being his vassal, all of Edward's retainers in England and Gascony 
owed allegiance to Edward as his vassals. While Edward had violated his oath, then they could theoretically stop upholding theirs. They were, in almost all cases, more interested in having an absent lord in England than one that was a little too close in Paris. Edward III's plans to retake Gascony were simple. Yeah. He needed his forces in Gascony to hold out for just a little while. In the meantime, he would spend a bunch of money to hire mercenaries to start attacking France from the north, causing Philip to focus his forces on the north, allowing Edward to, um, well, fight in the north of France is what it looks like. Yeah, he pretty much had a plan to invade an area of France, nowhere near the disputed area, while sending no aid or support to the disputed area. Simple, right? Well, in Edward the Black Prince's first episode, I will get into this a little. Let's just say, when Edward III was on campaign, he was usually brilliant. Before campaign started, he may have been a bit too grand in his planning. I hope you've enjoyed the start of this miniseries. I know I'm trying to cover a lot of people, but I think each one is pivotal to form a picture of why these wars happened. I think the actions of a king are important to understand, but all the people that could have been king, or even queen regnant, play a huge role in this area. I have a few people to thank this week. Two weeks ago, I was welcomed as the guest host for Rex Factor's pub quiz. Rex Factor's one of my favorite podcasts, and getting to talk to Graham and Allie was great. They really are as lovely as they seem on their show. Thank you both for being so welcoming. Next, I have my first patron. Carrie, thank you so much for believing in this show enough to support me. Finally, I often say me, but really I should say we. Well, you're unlikely to hear my husband on the show for a long time. He is here, in the background, helping me all the time. He reads every script and listens to my various edits before I post them. He does a great job making sure the show sounds great for all of my, or our listeners. Thank you, Philip. I will be back next week with The Black Prince, part one. Please join me. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod.